Romans chapter 9, please. Romans chapter 9. And let's look the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for the privilege we have today of coming together around your word. We pray that, Lord, you'd guide as we study your word together. Pray, Father, that you'd give us understanding. Father, that you would uh, take your word and apply it to our hearts and lives where applications to be made. That, Lord, you just guide us as we study together. Lord, I pray that you give me wisdom as I speak. Allow me to have your words and your thoughts. And may today you receive the praise and the glory as we study your word together. Because, Father, we know that it is your word. We know that, Father, it was written for our instruction. We pray that you just bless now as we study it. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us continue our study in the book of Romans. The next three chapters of Romans have been a matter of great debate and division amongst believers ever since the 4th century. It was in the 4th century that a Bible scholar by the name of Augustine developed a certain kind of theology that became popular in the 16th century during the Reformation. And Romans chapter 9 through 11 formed uh, one of the key scriptures that was used to support this view. And so the basic question that you and I need to answer today is why did Paul write Romans 9 through 11? Did he write it to support some 16th century Reformation doctrine or did he write it for some other reason. Well, there is enough information given to us in the book of Romans, and especially in Romans chapter 9 through 11, as to why Paul wrote these three chapters. And as you read these three chapters, it's clear that the Apostle Paul has a burden for his brethren. The Apostle Paul has a burden for Israel, the Jews. And that burden moves him to write these three chapters. So first today I want us to consider the burden of Paul here in verses 1 and 2. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. You know, the eighth chapter of the book of Romans ends with an unforgettable hymn of praise. Back in verse 31 of chapter 8, we read, What shall we say then to these things? If God before us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? Who shall separates from the love of Christ, shall tribulations or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither, life, uh, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature should be held as separators from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, that's a glorious end to a chapter. 
And with the end of chapter 8, with this great chorus, this great hymn of praise, Paul has now finished dealing with his doctrinal section of the book of Romans. That is, he's come to the end of his teaching for you and I on the subject of salvation. And the book could have gone from chapter 8 straight to chapter 12, which begins as, Wherefore I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It could have gone straight there. Because chapters 12 through chapter 16 deal with the practical teaching of how a saved person is to live, is to conduct his life in the light of chapters 1 through 8. But the book does not jump straight to chapter 12. It doesn't end at chapter 8 with this glorious, triumphant hymn of praise and then goes straight to chapter 12. It goes to chapters 9, 10 and 11 and that's because... With the ending of the doctrinal section, a problem arises that needs to be addressed before we can move on to chapter 12. And the problem that arises here in chapters 9, 10, 11 is the Jewish nation, about the Jewish nation in relationship to the gospel that's just been taught in the first eight chapters. And if you go back to chapter 1, we find that we're told the reason why this book is written is because... It's to share what is the gospel, to share the gospel with them. Look in Romans chapter 1, please, verse 13. Now I not have you ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am dead both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise, so as much as, as in me I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and of salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so Romans was written primarily, the first eight chapters in particular, was written so that the gospel of Jesus Christ might be shared with the Roman believers, that they might understand the gospel. And from Romans chapter 1, verse 17, right through chapter 8 and verse 39, what has been taught is this matter of the gospel. Telling what it means, what is the gospel, what does it mean to be justified by faith. And so by the time we come to the end of chapter 8, the conclusion is that justification has nothing to do with being a Jew. It has nothing to do with being circumcised. It has nothing to do with being of the seed of Abraham. It has nothing to do with keeping the law. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we're told that justification is by faith in Christ and Christ alone. Therefore, being justified by faith, we're peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So justification is about faith in Christ. It's not to do with being a Jew. It's not to do with being Abraham's seed. It's not to do with keeping the law. It's not to do with any of those things. It's to do by faith in Jesus Christ. But for the most part, Israel, and the reason for that is, uh, and the reason why the Jews are not saved at this time, is because for the most part, they've rejected their Messiah. The commentator McLean says this, the Jewish people as a nation had not received the gospel. They rejected Christ. Paul knew that. Everyone knew it at the time. Only a few Jews were in the church. 
as a nation. They had rejected the gospel. And, and as time went on, a great deal of opposition had arisen from his brethren according to the flesh. You see, the Jews thought, even after the coming of Christ, and the dying of Christ upon the cross of Calvary for our salvation, the Jews thought that salvation was found in them. They were in unbelief. And indeed, to this day, they're still in unbelief. And so what we have, by the time we come to chapter 9, a gigantic problem appears. With Paul saying that salvation has nothing to do with Israel, has nothing to do with being a Jew. Because as you study the Old Testament, what we find in the Old Testament is it's filled with promises that God has made to the Jewish nation. We saw some of that today. In Genesis with Pastor, where he talked about uh, Isaac and God coming to Isaac and reiterating the promise he'd made to his father Abraham. And as you read the Old Testament, there's promise after promise after promise declared to the nation of Israel. So the obvious question when you come to chapter 9 is this. Where does Israel fit into the picture now? Has God finished with Israel? Has God turned away from Israel and, and embraced the church and now the church is the recipient spiritually of all those promises of the Old Testament Israel doesn't matter anymore has God finished with Israel forever prior to the coming of the Christ Israel was at the forefront of God's plan so what about Israel now that Christ has come what about Israel now that man is justified by faith what about Israel? Where does Israel fit into God's scheme of things? What about all those promises that God made to them? I'm sure you and I can see the horror the first eight chapters of Romans must have been to the Jewish reader. They'd grown up believing that they were God's chosen people, that they are the apple of his eye that they are the means of salvation. The Messiah is going to come through them. They believe all of that. They understand all of that. They've been taught all of that all their lives. And now Paul has just spent eight chapters saying that salvation has nothing to do with being a Jew. It's all about Christ and faith in Him. Everything he had been taught as a Jew about the blessings of Abraham coming down the genetic line were now undermined. To be an Israelite, they thought, meant they were entitled to inherit the promises. But that seems now to be under attack. So having shared his controversial anti-Semitic gospel, Paul was anxious to answer the questions of Israel. Where does Israel fit into God's redemptive plan? And is it fair for God to set them aside? Now it's true that when Israel delivered their Messiah up to be crucified, that they rejected him. And they rejected his gospel. And for that, God set aside the nation of Israel. But we need to understand this. And Romans chapter 9 through 11 are all about this. God has not set them aside forever God is not finished with Israel yet and that's why we have this passage right in the middle of this book after the doctrinal section of chapter 8 before the practical section of chapter 12 verses 9 chapters 9 through 11 are all about 
ensuring the nation of Israel understands God has not finished with them yet. God has not set them aside forever. Israel still has a place in God's plan, in God's economy. There is a day coming when God will finish his work with Israel and they will see the promises fulfilled for them. You know, God had made definite promises that despite Israel's rejection of Christ, this first coming must be fulfilled. Go back with me to Numbers, please. Numbers 23. Numbers 23 and verse 19 says this, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? God is not a man that he should lie. God will keep his promises. And one such promise, the key to understanding God's plan for Israel is found back in Genesis chapter 12. Let's go back there, please. Genesis chapter 12. And verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, from thy father's house, into a land that I will show thee. And I'll make thee a great nation, and I'll bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I'll bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God made a twofold promise here to Abraham. He promised the land of Israel to Abraham, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 1, and in verses 2 and 3, he promised a people that would be a nation. And because of that nation, all the peoples of the world will be blessed through the coming of Messiah. God had made a promise that the land that Abraham walked upon, that land of Palestine, that land of Israel, was his land. God was going to give that to him and his descendants. And it was God's promise that the land from the river Euphrates to the river Nile would one day belong to Israel. And that Israel would be a blessing to the nations through Abraham's seed. And the land was never promised to the church. It was promised to a nation. And that promise began to be fulfilled when Israel, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, after their escape from Egypt, finally enters the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, as the nation of Israel stand prepared to go into the promised land, to cross over the Jordan under the leadership of Joshua, Moses addresses the people. And Moses goes over the first covenant that God ever made with his people about the land, how that land is their land. And there on the banks of the Jordan, he made another covenant with them. It was a covenant of blessings and cursings. Go back with me, if you would, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 18. And thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, 
for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. And it shall be if thou do all do at all forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, and I will testify against thee against you this day, and ye shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyed before your face, and so shall ye perish, because you would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. So God here, as he prepares to get the people into the, na into the promised land, gives them a, another covenant, a covenant of blessing and cursing. If they follow him and they keep his commandments, then God will bless them in the land. But if they disobey him and they worship other gods, God will curse them in the land. Now we know that Israel chose cursing by their sin and their unbelief. And because of their sin and their unbelief, we know that uh, uh, at first, judgment came in part upon the northern kingdom of Israel and uh, the ten tribes of the north were taken into captivity by the Assyrians in around about 700 BC and they were scattered and dispersed amongst the nations. We know that the southern kingdom of Judah was also overrun by Nebuchadnezzar around about 605 BC, and they were taken into captivity. And for 70 years they remained in Babylon. And God's, final ju God's judgment finally penned upon the nation of Israel when Titus in AD 70 marched into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And the people were scattered abroad. Israel was overrun by the Gentiles. And now we're living in the times of the Gentiles. But the day is coming when Israel will be restored. Go back to Deuteronomy again, please. This time, chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 25. Deuteronomy 4, 25. When thou shalt beget children... And children's children, and ye shall be remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves, and make a graven image, or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God, to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. And ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land, whereunto you go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed, and the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, with the Lord shall lead you, and there ye shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. When thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, thou shalt be, and be, thou shalt be obedient to his voice. For the Lord thy God is merciful God. He will not forsake thee, nor destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he sware unto them. There is a day coming when Israel will be restored. It's a tribulation time. The end of this church age, there will be seven years tribulation. And the tribulation is to do with God fulfilling his promises to the nation of Israel. 
the conclusion of Daniel's 70th week, 70 weeks in the 70th week of Daniel to do with the time of Jacob's trouble. God's going to deal with Israel. He's going to bring them to the place where they call unto him and then we'll enter into the millennial kingdom and the nation of Israel will see the promises that God made to Abraham will be ultimately fulfilled for his glory when they're no longer in unbelief, when they believe in him in the days of tribula- after the days of tribulation, God will restore his people. Now, since 1948, Israel's been back in part in the land. And we've seen the movement towards the time where God will fulfill his promise. But they're still in unbelief. They're still suffering cursings. All you have to do is turn the news on at the moment, and you know that Israel is still suffering. They're in the land. But there are plenty of people around the world who want them out of the land. And that doesn't just mean the Palestinians and, and, uh, and all those around them. You listen to the world media. Which side are they taking at the moment? It's not Israel's side. Israel is supposedly the aggressor. But, you know, they suffer every day rocket attack upon rocket attack upon rocket attack. And eventually, if you poke the bear long enough, it will retaliate. And Israel has now retaliated. But they're copying all the, all the abuse from the media around the world in many places because Israel is still in unbelief. They have not called upon their Messiah. The day is coming when they will and they will cry out to him and God will answer their prayer. Jesus Christ will come again. He'll stand upon the Mount of Olives. He'll deliver his people and the millennial kingdom will ensue and Israel will have their promises fulfilled. And that's what Romans 9 through 11 is all about. Paul wants you and I to understand. He wanted his people to understand. God had not finished with them yet. Yes, the church is the means by which God's getting the gospel out today. Yes, God turned from Israel to the church. Yes, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And not in Abraham and not in Abraham's seed. But there is a day coming where God will keep his promises that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to all those after him, after them. Because Israel is God's people. Yes, they're in unbelief. But eventually they will receive the blessing. God will keep his promises. And when Paul writes Romans 9 through 11, it's this restoration that he has in mind. His instrument of blessing at the moment, it's no longer Israel. Yes, it's true, it's the church. But God is not finished with them. And let's never forget that. He will fulfill his promises. But not yet. For all men still need to be saved. Even Israel needs to be saved. And so here then in Romans 9 through 11, Paul's thoughts are turned to the condition of his own people and the state of their unbelief. The plight of Israel fills his heart with sorrow. He's burdened for them. So we see, secondly, the genuine nature of Paul's burden. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. You know, the Jews might have brought a charge against the Apostle Paul that he didn't care about his kinsmen the Jew. They may have said he's so wrapped up in his new gospel that he's forgotten all about his people. But that's not true. 
And Paul wanted them to understand that, so he starts out Romans 9.1 by saying, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. He opens the chapter with a triple affirmation of his honesty. He calls upon his conscience, he calls upon the Savior, and he calls upon the Holy Spirit to bear witness to what he's about to say. I say the truth in Christ. My conscience bear witness of it, along with the Holy Ghost. He said, I want you to understand, I'm telling you the truth. What I'm about to tell you, what I'm about to say, is the absolute truth. My conscience, the Savior, and the Holy Spirit bear witness to that. He wanted them to know that his, gen that his burden for his people Israel was a genuine burden. And Romans 9.1 sets forth the reality of his grief and Romans 9.2 sets forth the intensity of his grief that I may that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in heart here in Romans chapter 8 the apostle Paul has reached the summit of his teaching on justification and that's why he bursts out in praise at the end of the chapter assuring us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ that's in uh, the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. But now Paul's tone changes. His tone becomes somber. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that he's in heaviness and continual sorrow. The word heaviness means double sorrow. He's doubly sorrowful. The word sorrow means pain, a consuming pain. His sorrow and his pain are because of Israel's unbelief. Paul says, I want you to understand that with everything I've said, with all the teaching of my justification and salvation, has nothing to do with the fact that I don't love my own people Israel. I do. I have a burden for you. You need to be saved just as much as anybody else needs to be saved. My burden is so real it consumes me. My pain is so real that it just weighs me down. I have such a burden for you. I haven't forgotten you. He sees his brethren on their way to a Christ's eternity. He sees his brethren, the Jews, rejecting their Messiah and now rejecting the very message that can save them. And it weighs him down. Something that really bothers the Apostle Paul was on his heart. Beloved, here's a great challenge for us. Do we have great sorrow and pain for the souls of men? Do we really care? Do we care for the lost? When we go about our daily business, do we care for the lost? Do we have a burden that just weighs us down? Do we have heaviness of heart? Do we have deep consuming sorrow, when we look at the lost and see that they're on the way to hell, do we care about them? Well, if I'm honest, I can tell you that I don't always care for them. I get so consumed in my daily activities that I don't take time to think about them, and that's shame on me. But I don't think I'm alone. I think we all go through stages whereby we don't think about the lost. Do we care about them? We ought to. 
You know, this is not just the burden of Paul, it's the burden of the Lord. Doesn't he say, he is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance in 2 Peter 3.9? This is the burden of the Lord himself. Jesus Christ went to the cross of Calvary to die for sinners because God loved them. Because God loved you, God loved me. Christ died for us. That should give you and I a burden for the lost. You know, you and I should ask, we should pray that the Lord would give us a burden for the lost. Now, he expressed his genuineness of his burden. In verse 3, we see the depths or the depth of Paul's burden. Look at verse 3. He says, For I could wish that myself were accursed for Christ, for my brethren and my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul's great love and sorrow for his brethren is dramatically displayed for us here in verse 3. When he says, I wish that I myself were accursed for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The word for, here at the beginning of verse 3, indicates the reason for the strong statement found in verse 1 and 2. The reason why he said, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness. In the Holy Ghost I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Here is why I have that continual heaviness, why I have that sorrow in my heart, is because I wish that I myself could be accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So deep is the grief of the Paul, so deep is his burden, so deep is his sorrow, so heavy is his heart, resulting from the unbelief of the nation of Israel, the unbelief of his brethren, the Jews, and from the Lord's displeasure with them, that he states... I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ. Here we see the depths of his burden. Note what he says. He says he's willing to be separated from the Lord if that somehow would accomplish salvation for Israel. The word a curse means lost forever. I don't know if you can imagine what he's saying here or the depth of what he's saying here Paul knows that he's saved he knows that he's been gloriously declared righteous he's justified he's on his way to heaven he's had his sins forgiven he is gloriously saved he just talked about that in eight chapters finishing with chapter eight with a glorious hymn of, uh, of praise to God that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ And yet the apostle says, my burden is so great for my own people Israel that I wish that I might be lost forever if that meant they would get saved. Paul says, I'd be willing to go to the lake of fire for eternity if Israel would get saved. I'll trade places with them. That's how deep his burden is. That's how deep his concern is. That's his heart. As he thought on their unbelief, he wept like Moses of old. Go back to Exodus chapter 32, please. 
Exodus 32. And verse 30, Exodus 32, verse 30. It came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin. Now I'll go unto the Lord, peradventure I'll make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made the, them gods of gold. Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord plagued the people because they made a calf, which Aaron made. Moses pleaded for the people. He said, they've sinned against thee. Blot my name out of your book, Lord. And with the same passion, the Apostle Paul now says, Lord, if it's possible, I'd like to be a curse for my own people. If they would get saved, if I'm a curse, that means their salvation. Then let it be so. And it's this great passion that gave, for souls that gave Paul his perspective in life and understanding what was needed. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. There can be no doubting in these three chapters that the Apostle Paul is concerned for the nation of Israel and it's a deep, genuine concern for them and their salvation. And he writes these chapters that they might understand that God will fulfill all of his promises he made to Abraham for them. But right now what they need is to accept their Messiah. They need to be saved. Because if they don't, then they'll miss out on the blessing. Love us believers, we ought to be concerned about those that are perishing. We ought to have a burden for the lost. For our fellow countrymen. For those we work with, for those we go to school with, for those that we meet socially out and about, for those that we see around us, we ought to pray for them. And ask God to give us a burden for them. You know, Spurgeon said rather bluntly this, Get love for the souls of men, then you will be then you will not be whining about the dead dog or a sick cat or about the cockroaches of the family and the little disturbances that John and Mary may make by their idle talk. You'll be delivered from petty worries and need not further describe them. If you are concerned about the souls of men, get yourself full of great grief and your little griefs will be driven out. Spurgeon can get away with a lot, couldn't he? With uh, how he describes things. It's a pretty good description. Get a burden for the souls of men and your gr little griefs will be driven out. We have a love for souls of men. We have a burden for the lost. You know, Paul is gone. Peter is gone. James is gone. All those early apostles have gone. That early church has gone. 
They can no longer do the work. They can no longer witness. The martyrs have gone. But we're still here, beloved. Sinners still need the Savior. Christ is still willing to save. He's not willing that any should perish. And people out there still need the Savior. What this world needs is Jesus Christ. This world doesn't need solutions, doesn't need fixing. This world needs the Savior. We look around us and we see the mess the world's in. You know, the only way for the world to be corrected is for Jesus Christ to enter the souls of men and save them. And one day God will fix the problem. We will enter the millennial kingdom and all every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ will rule and reign. But until that day, what souls need today is the Saviour. They need to hear that Jesus died for them. They need to hear that Jesus loves them. They need to hear that they're sinners before a holy God and they need the Saviour. And the burden of our hearts, beloved, ought to be for the souls of men. The burdens of our heart ought to be for their need of the Saviour. We ought to pray daily, Lord, lead me to some soul this day that I might tell them about the Saviour. And when God gives us opportunity, we need to pray the Lord will give us boldness to take it that will stand up for Christ and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world. You know, the answer to man's problems is Jesus Christ. He is the answer. If all the leaders of the world got saved, what a difference it would make. If all the leaders of industry got saved, what a difference it would make. People in our town got saved, what a difference it would make. Jesus Christ died so that men and women might be saved. Let's ask God to give each of us a genuine, continual passion for the lost. And let us pray that as the Lord gives us opportunity to share the gospel, that we will have the boldness to share that gospel message. And beloved, let's remember to pray for Israel. God's people. They are his people. They are the apple of his eye. They're in unbelief. And what they need more than anything is the Savior. Pray for them. They're suffering the hands of the world, suffering the hands of their enemy. But one day they will have the victory. Let's pray that God opens the eyes of Israel and they receive their Messiah. I wonder, do you have a burden for the lost today? I trust so. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Father, for the Apostle Paul sharing his heart, his burden for his people. Lord, give us a burden for souls. Help us, Father God, to pray that you would lead us to some soul each day. And then give us the boldness to share the gospel so that they might be saved. Lord, what the world needs today is Jesus Christ.
Help us to do our part in sharing the gospel for your glory. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to turn to 306 in closing.